It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A kind of a, a, a very disorganized Europe to come, where you're going to have a, you know, a less united EU. You're going to have Russia and China vying for influence. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. Topping off what's been an incredible month for the podcast, our guest this week is the esteemed Robert D. Kaplan. Robert is a prolific essayist, the author of some 18 books, and widely regarded as one of the world's leading thinkers on foreign policy, defence and geopolitics. He's previously been named in foreign policy's top 100 global thinkers, and he's advised kings, prime ministers and defence secretaries all over the world. If that wasn't enough, he's also reported from no fewer than 100 different countries around the world, giving him a grounding in the reality of foreign affairs that most pundits can only dream of. We sat down to discuss where Donald Trump has gone wrong in Asia, how China is spreading its influence around the world, and what the future holds for a middle-sized country like the UK in a world of two dominant superpowers. Can we just start off talking a little bit about um, how you started out? Because slightly unusually perhaps for some someone who's a foreign policy analyst you've your main career if you like was as a journalist um did you always want to be a journalist growing up in new york did you think i want to travel the world and, and see lots of other places well uh my father in the 1930s traveled all over the country during the great depression working at race at, at horse racing tracks and he filled me with stories about what I think it was 46 or 43 of the lower 48 states, what they looked like, his adventures and experiences. This was during the Great Depression when America was a much different country than it is today, when it was vaster, when the states were very different from each other, when the cuisine was different from one part of the country to the other. So America was like a universe to me. And then when I went to college, I went to the University of Connecticut, which is a middle-of-the-pack working-class college, and I took some courses in journalism. And also, I studied English literature, and I decided that the only way to make a living, you know, loving to read and write was to be a journalist. So from the beginning, I wanted to be a journalist. Okay, so it's, uh, and you've traveled in lots of the sorts of countries that people commentate a lot on without necessarily having been there. I mean, do you, uh, do you think it makes you a, a much better analyst having been to so many different places? 
look, um, people can go to a place and get it all wrong. And people can never go to a place and yet get it right. But that's usually not what happens. What tends to happen is that uh, people who've been at, a, been at a place tend to have a deeper text, texturous kind of um, feel or grasp of what this place is like. Um, and I find that one of the worst things about Washington is that there's this assumption of knowledge about distant places where little knowledge actually exists. Um, and that, um, and that you know, all things being equal, you should trust the people who've had experience working there, and if they haven't worked there, at least traveled there or at least visited there a few times. Uh-huh. And, and what do you think, uh, do you think there has been a bit of a, drain, a brain drain in American policymaking in terms of that kind of on-the-ground experience? Yes, and it's been gradual, because I'm writing a biography now of a human rights worker um, who worked for the State Department. And, and the base, the, the, the large part of the book has to do with the 1980s, with the Schultz, George Schultz State Department. And this was really the golden age of the State Department, when area expertise was valued, when, um, you know, when there were relative, when the ideological arguments were very muted and nuanced, and, uh, and there was a tremendous value put in what, how, what the embassies on the ground reported on a place. And when ambassadors had real power on the ground, um, that has changed dramatically. A number of things have happened. Number one has been the, uh, the technology revolution. Because of email, um, decisions can be made centrally much more. Uh, 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 foreign area officers on the ground in distant countries um, are tied to their desks. They can't leave it because of all the requests and emails they get from Washington. So there's less on-the-ground reporting on the part of the, of the State Department in the field than ever existed before. I mean, what do you put that down to a slight sort of post-Cold War complacency? Is it a series of... It's part of it. It's part of it. It's, look, the Cold, one of the things the Cold War did was the United States and the Soviet Union competed everywhere in the world. I mean, every country mattered um, because the Cold War was really, um, it was an idea battle about which system of governance was better democracy, capitalist democracy, or communism. And because there was a competition over which system was better, every single country in Africa or anywhere could be an example um, for one side or the other. So the State Department was deeply involved with foreign aid, foreign assistance, everywhere. And, 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 and that it's so the Cold War forced America to be international, to have an internationalist mindset. Um, and once the Cold War was over, there was a, you know, that reason went away, essentially. Um, there was no longer a selfish 
national security reason to be involved with assistance programs in Africa or Asia or Latin America. But do you think that's changing now that China is on the rise and are, are people in the White House it, aware it, of that? You know, I, It may change. It, we're in a very early stage because clearly whatever you think about China, the United States and China are entering what seems to be a long competition, we'll call it. Um, we're re-entering a kind of bipolar landscape with an asterisk, and the asterisk is, is Russia. Um, but it's mainly U.S. and China. And there will be a competition, there already is, uh, and, and that may lead to the U.S. to engage more both psychologically on the ground with area expertise throughout the world. I mean, you said the asterisk was Russia. I, would, I just wonder where, yes. where do you situate the European Union in, in a bipolar world? Well, um, my, the, uh, I see the bipo bipolarity as the U.S. versus China in a big way. But there's also the U.S. versus Russia. And though Russia is impulsive, it's insecure, it's aggressive in a way that the Chinese are not. The Chinese are more like businessmen, more like opaque businessmen. Nevertheless, Russia is a much weaker country than China. Its economy is minuscule. Um, its institutions are much weaker than China's institutions. So that um, Russia is an asterisk, and the European Union is becoming a kind of um, battlefield um, for the influence of Russia in Central Eastern Europe, of China in the Mediterranean, in Greece, Italy, and Portugal, where China has been increasingly active, and the United States, of course. And how do you see, do you think that Donald Trump has a properly thought out strategy towards China? Because he always seems like a very impulsive person himself. I mean, do you think that that's kind of for show? I, I, I think that Trump does not have a well-developed strategy of any kind. He's a man of deep impulse, disorganization. Um, however... Even though he doesn't have an organized strategy, even though he doesn't listen to advice, he does have impulses. And the impulses, I think, actually can be mapped out a little bit. And what they show is a very Jacksonian mindset. Are you familiar with the term Jacksonian? Uh, as, as in Andrew Jackson, yeah. Yes. Uh, I am, uh, yes. <laughs> well, it means something. It, it means something in the American lexic, political lexicon. It means someone who beats his chest about the, the greatness and pride of the United States, who's very martial aggressive, but at the end of the day does not want to engage in, um, in great endeavors overseas. Um, so that Trump's impulses are to be very aggressive, but at the end of the day, to avoid war. And how do you square that with having someone like John Bolton and his team, who's famously extremely well, hawkish? Um, um, Trump, at the end of the day, 
you know, often does not listen to his advisors. Trump likes the fact that Bolton is hawkish, that, that, that Pompeo is hawkish. But at least up until today, he doesn't seem to be willing to let them drag him into a, into a war. Yeah, I mean, do, so do you think that, I mean, often people get very scared when Trump says something about North Korea or something like that, but do you think this is just an, another part of his, his usual kind of um, tactic in terms of negotiations, where he starts high and then comes down? Um, yeah, I think Trump, yeah, you know, Trump never wants to show weakness. He never wants to show that he's eager for a deal. Because if you sound like you're eager for a deal, you, as he puts it, you're dead in the water. Uh, and he sees that was the great sin, the great flaw of John Kerry's negotiation with the Iranians. That Kerry and Obama both seem publicly eager for a deal. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Right. I mean, speaking of Iran, I mean, that's obviously in the news over here at the moment after they seized one of our tankers. I mean, how do you see things playing out um, with Iran and the Trump administration? I mean, do they have any more road to run there in terms of what they're willing to threaten? Well... Uh, I think there are several aspects going on. First of all, the chance of a, of a military eruption between uh, is greater with Russia than it is with China because of the impulsiveness and insecurity of the Putin regime. But it's greater with Iran than with Russia because of the nature of the Iranian regime. Um, in other words, you could have a very interesting geopolitical conversation with Xi Jinping. You could also have one with Vladimir Putin, but you could not have one with Ayatollah Khamenei. And in other words, you're dealing with a different kind of regime in Iran than you are with Russia and China. And so that's one factor. The other factor is neither side seems to want a war 
what they seem to want to be doing is setting the new terms of, of, of the new terms of the conflict. The, the Iranians have their backs against the wall. Trump has torn up the nuclear agreement, which has taught the Iranians that they cannot trust the United States, even less so than before. And, and the, uh, the economic consequences of Trump's sanctions have been worse than the Iranians had bargained for. So the Iranians are really up against the wall, and what they've decided to do is a, is a number of things. One that doesn't get much media attention is that the regime allows quite a bit of demonstrations against it internally around the country to let off steam. It's allowed women a bit more freedom in how they dress. This is a very sophisticated regime. It's not a one-man thugocracy like Saddam's was in Iraq. Um, and it's also used small-scale attacks and tanker seizures to, uh, to show the fragility, the geographical fragility of the Strait of Hormuz, which is, has only two shipping lanes, each only two miles wide. It doesn't take much to send oil and insurance prices up, and it doesn't take all that much to close the strait. So this is what uh, Iran is doing. Now, the United States military in the Middle East, Central Command, that is, U.S. Central Command, has decided on a strategy of not being provoked by Iranian actions. It's, it, the U.S. military has said it has no intention for a tit-for-tat or response to what Iran is doing. They're going to just sit back and let it happen, that, you know, uh, that unless there is a, a very great provocation, they're not going to get kind of drawn into a larger conflict. I mean, um, we're about to have a new prime minister tomorrow. What would your advice to him be in terms of our strategy in uh, the Strait? In Iran? Yes. Um, my, my advice would be don't be drawn into a wider conflict, take extra precautions with your ships, um, and, and do as much as you can to avoid, to avoid spiraling up into a, in, in, into a war that neither you want and also that Iran does not want. I mean, how much do you think that um, the U.S. or the combined action in Libya has had an effect on other countries who've developed... Um, weapons and they've seen, seen Gaddafi and seen that he's got rid of them and still been toppled yeah well yes I mean uh, it's not just Gaddafi um, it, you know we, we've kind of set a, a pattern where is if you if you already have nuclear weapons we're we're not going to attack you um, but if you're in the process of developing them or then you give them up you're vulnerable in other words, we're setting the wrong signals. We've been sending the wrong signals. Had Saddam Hussein already had nuclear weapons, we probably never would have went to war in Iraq. There would have been some other kind of um, way of dealing with it. Um, but, the, but the Libya example, as you pointed out, was particularly bad because here was a regime which in its later years 
was giving up its weapons of mass destruction, cooperating with, with Western intelligence agencies, trying to get on the good side of the West as much as possible. And then the minute there was a demonstration against it, we deserted the regime. Yeah, and just coming back to what we were talking about before, we're talking about a bipolar world and, and America versus China. The big infrastructure thing we're seeing, obviously, is the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, how yeah. easily do you think China is actually going to realize all of these projects without running into local difficulties? I mean, do they have the yeah. on-the-ground analysis that you mentioned at the beginning? Yeah, well, in, in speaking about on-the-ground analysis, between 2007 and 2009, I spent two years just visiting all of these Chinese ports, which were then in the making. Um, it, uh, for a book about the Indian Ocean and, you know, about the greater Indian Ocean. And I basically wrote a book about Belt and Road before it was called Belt and Road. Um, and what I, what I found out was that each project is different. Some were realized very quickly and successfully, like the one in Myanmar, where there's a port on the Bay of Bengal where natural gas from the Bay of Bengal gets shipped by pipeline directly into China, thus avoiding the fragile Strait of Malacca. Others, like on the other extreme, uh, then you had Hambantota, which was an amazing construction project to watch unfold, as I did, um, um, but which went into debt. And then the other is Gwadar in Pakistan, which I visited uh, for quite a while in 2008. And Gwadar is a beautiful port. The problem with it is the land side is surrounded by Baluch um, separatists, um, who are very anti-Chinese. They feel that, you know, that, you know, that, that Gwadar has been developed without any money going to ethnic Baluch. It's all been stolen in their minds by ethnic Punjabis in Pakistan, in Lahore and Pakistan. And that this Punjabi Chinese deal has left the Baluch out. So all of these projects have their particular issues. Nevertheless, you shouldn't look at Belt and Road as a specific plan. It's a grand strategy. And like any grand strategy, the idea is to give China a direction in which to go, um, some kind of coherent, sensible direction in terms of development. And that, and that grand strategy, being only a grand strategy, is always amenable to, to compromises, to changes, to adjustments. So that China is adjusting the terms of which it lends money so as to avoid future Hambantota port debt collapses. Um, it's trying to work with the Pakistan government for Belt and Road. Um, and, and on and on it goes. It's, um, you know, the genius of it is it, it seeks to expand China's domestic market. It, um, it allows China to develop supply chains outside of the normal global Western supply chains. 
And it's, it, though it may not make sense in purely capitalistic terms, witness Hambantota port, which has fallen into debt, it does make sense in imperial and mercantile terms, in terms of giving China commercial and military access throughout the Indian Ocean, right up to the eastern Mediterranean in the ports of Piraeus, where China's been running that, been, been developing that port, rather, and, and from China's point of view, hopefully in Trieste in, Greece, in Italy. And uh, what do you think, uh, I mean, the, the sort of analysis or punditry you get often speaks about China as if it's this sort of runaway juggernaut. Um, but do you think that other powers in Asia might kind of club together to try and stop China dominating the area? And is there much scope um, for that? Well, look, because of the Chinese challenge, Vietnam, India, Australia, Japan have all been kind of in, in, in dramatically intensifying their own bilateral and multilateral relations with each other to form a kind of emerging Asian power web to kind of balance against China's growth. The problem with this is, this is all very interesting, but without an American director for this emerging Asian power web, it doesn't really add up to much. You need an engaged Washington that, that has a big idea for Asia, as big as Belt and Road, that's about, um, that's about free trade, it's about military alliances, and it's about democratic trending, even if each of these countries aren't all democratic. And when Trump tore up TPP, the Trans-Pacific Pipeline, Trans-Pacific Partnership, he sort of threw away that American big idea and left the, left the, the stage to China's Belt and Road. Um, but I also think in a larger sense, the only thing that can stop China is China itself, um, meaning that China is developing a vast middle class and middle classes are notoriously ungrateful. They have wants and needs and desires that a country of peasants never had. So China, precisely because of its success, is going to get harder to govern rather than easier to govern. I mean, how much of your work looks at, or your field even, looks at things such as demographic problems inside China? So we have this huge ageing population coming down the line, partly because of the one-child right, policy. I mean, yeah. How important do you think that is? Because that's potentially going to slow their economy down quite significantly. Yeah. It, it, well, look, we've got a number of problems. We have an emerging middle class that's going to be more... Um, that's going to hold the regime to a, that could hold the regime to a higher account to a you know to to a higher standard you have an aging population you have an economy that's growing at a slower and slower pace um all of this adds up to trouble internal trouble over the next decade or two on the other hand you have the regime using technology, whether it's facial recognition or trying to harness big data to, to, to kind of um, monitor the Internet searches of its citizens. Um, in other words, the regime's been trying to use technology to control the population more. Um, so you have these forces battling against each other. Um, 
I think, though, as the economy slows, uh, growth slows, rather, and uh, you have an aging population, you have a middle class that's harder to satisfy, it would be natural for the regime to dial up nationalism as a default option. Mm. That was actually going to be my next question, was uh, is there a yeah. risk? Because you've seen them do it already a bit with um, sort of organizing these anti-Japanese protests and things like this. Yeah. We've had a little yeah. foretaste yeah. of it. Yeah, also, the way the, Chine- the Chinese, um, you know, a number of years ago, were being particularly aggressive against the Philippines. Um, then the Philippines elected a leader who moved closer to China as a result of this aggression. What China's anti-Philippine aggression was, is really about, it's about poking America in the eye because the Philippines has a treaty alliance with the United States. And so by being tough with the Philippines, China is essentially messaging to the United States, we could do whatever we want. Um, And we've talked quite a lot about China for obvious reasons, but I wonder, uh, one country that doesn't get as much attention at all is India, even though it's, you know, an absolutely enormous, the world's largest democracy. I mean, where do you see that going in terms of its strategic importance and its military-built capabilities? Yeah, um, I'll be going to India actually in a few weeks. Um, uh, I haven't been for a number of years, so I've organized a trip. Um, I think, look, India... India now has the most geopolitically minded prime minister since independence. Um, He's very different. He's a whole different personality profile than the previous Nehruvian prime ministers. Um, He's very willing to band with the United States to balance against China, but he doesn't want... Uh, but he would like India to be more autocratic in order to emulate China's economic growth. Um, the pro- I interviewed Modi in Gujarat prov- state in Gujarat um, in 2008, and he said to me, he said, "Look, I want to make Gujarat like South Korea or Singapore. That's my model." Well. That's a good model to have for a single Indian state on the, on the Arabian Sea that was always open to trade and commerce. But India is not Gujarat. Um, it's big, it's unwieldy, it's diverse, it has powerful individual state interests, it has, you know, it, it has a very um, uh, muscular parliamentary system. So it's hard even for an autocratic type like Modi to really to really dramatically change things. So India will always be in the right direction and will be getting stronger and stronger, but the pace is going to continue to disappoint people. Um, and I just wonder um, what we've talked a lot about the the great powers. Um, what is, does the future hold for a middle rank power such as the United Kingdom? Well, that's very interesting because, the, look, the United Kingdom, the UK, is, look, it's essentially leaving Europe. It's a matter of what the terms are, you know. And, if it, and so what does that do? Well, it leaves Europe 
op- more, it leaves mainland Europe more open to the power of Germany, given that Spain, Italy, and Greece are in terms, you know, are, you know, are not in good shape. They're badly, you know, they're just, they have real systemic problems. Greece is climbing out of them. Italy is a disaster. Spain is performing modestly at best. And then there's France, which can't get anything done, essentially. Um, You know, they can't really get economic reform done. So that leaves Germany as the most successful of the major powers on mainland Europe. And leaving Europe in the hands of Germany when the next generation of German leaders may not be able to, may not have the wisdom of the Kohl's, the Schmitz, uh, the, the Adenauer's, and even the Merkel's who had a deep, deep knowledge of World War II and memories of the Cold War, um, you know, I think leaves Britain, uh, I think leaves Britain at the mercy of, you know, uh, of what's going to be, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a very disorganized Europe to come, where you're going to have, a, you know, a less united EU, you're going to have Russia and China vying for influence. And it's you know, what I'm really worried about, what I'm getting to, uh, in the, uh, is that I, I would not be surprised if down the road Germany leans more in the direction of Moscow because that's the path of least resistance. Take the second Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from, from, uh, from Russia. Have an informal German-Russian alliance. This is the fear. I'm not predicting it. It's just a fear I have. And that would leave Britain even relying more on the United States. That would be the great power, a middle-level power like Britain would have to rely increasingly on. Because I think by being a member of the EU, with its Atlantic connection with the U.S., allowed Britain to punch above its weight. Okay. Well, <laughs> and it, it, and in the future, it may not be able to punch above its weight as much. Okay. Well, on that happy note, um, I will have to call it a day. Robert, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.